Welcome to Canadian Defence Focus from CDR Radio, produced by Canadian Defence Review Magazine. This series of podcasts features interviews with leaders and experts in the defence industry, as well as reports and profiles on the very latest in defence technology. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the CDR Radio podcast. I'm James Careless, Ottawa Bureau Chief with Canadian Defence Review, Canada's leading defence magazine. This time on the CDR Radio podcast, we're digging deep into cyber intelligence. We're going to talk about the real cyber threats facing Canada and our NATO allies, and what is being done to counter them. My guests are Sapper Labs CEO and co-founder Al Dillon and Mark Waters, who is leader of the CADSI Cyber Agenda at the Canadian Association of Defence and Security Industries. Both are well-informed cybersecurity experts. Hi, Alan Mark. Thanks for joining us on the CDR Radio podcast. Hi, James. Thanks. It's our pleasure. Hi, James. Thanks for having us. So, Al, let's start out with you. Tell us about Sapper Labs and your work in enhancing Canada's cybersecurity. Sure. Thank you very much. Um, so, Sapper Labs has been around since about 2006, but just recently we consolidated Sapper Labs uh, Inc. and Sapper Labs Cyber Solutions into one company called Sapper Labs Group, actually, just last week. And so, uh, as we go forward, Sapper Labs is, still remains our brand. And as we go forward, um, will be uh, recognized as uh, you know the core brand for consolidation of several other companies that we're pursuing uh, actively as well. So, Sapper Labs itself is a intelligence and cyber defense company. We focus on um, the military, government, uh, security agencies, and uh, the energy sector for uh, their needs in the intelligence and cyber defense realm. Al, can you tell me some of the work that Sapper Labs is doing in terms of Canadian cybersecurity? Sapper Labs is a cyber intelligence and cyber defense company at its core. Um, we have been leading innovations and innovative projects for the past several years in the country with respect to the Department of National Defense and Government of Canada, specifically around active cyber defense and attribution. And attribution means the basically identification of who is the adversary and or the threat that's attacking uh, the infrastructure of Canada and or our tactical networks or what have you with respect to the department. And so we've been leading various projects in this regard and gained a ton of perspective of exactly what Canada is facing as threats as well as within the department, but also how to uh, deal with the threat and, and, and best identify them. Right? So that's been the core focus of what we've been doing over the last several years. That is expanding significantly now within the intelligence domain. We're into all source intelligence collection, which really takes, uh, you know, as we sense the planet uh, globally today, um, when you think about, you know, smartphones and everything from subsea system floor to uh, to uh, LEO satellites and, uh, you know, low earth orbit satellites, et cetera, uh, we're getting data and imagery from everywhere. And so as we sense these planets, the planet overall, there's a lot of different points that we can utilize for open source intelligence collection that are critical to, um, to you know, providing better insights for commanders in the military and or the defenders of Canada's infrastructure. And so we've been, um, we've been spending a lot of time uh, doing additional research in those uh, regards, as well as, you know, cooperative projects, I would call it, with the department. 
Okay, so now Mark, tell us more about the CADSI Cyber Agenda. What are you doing and what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, so um, CADSI has been in sort of the cyber game for you know most of its legacy, but I think only really seriously in about the past three years. And so for us, uh, the real kind of task at the start was just to gain familiarity with the space. Um, so we established a council of kind of 12 of Canada's leading cyber experts and through them, um, we began to understand a bit more about the challenges and sort of struggles that we're facing industry. Um, and then we wanted to build around that then a core set of, you know, programs or offerings that we thought would help. You know, I think where we've had huge success is the integration of cyber into, you know, CANSAC in terms of the labs, uh, you know, very obvious win for us quite quickly. I think some of the more challenging issues though that we're dealing with are kind of bridging the gap between government and industry around, I guess, all three kind of, you know, strategy, policy, as well as operations. Um, and so where our efforts have really shifted to now is to try to really deepen our relationships with the communication security establishment, the new Center for Cybersecurity, um, as well as I said, to make them aware of the offerings that industry has here in Canada and to lightly push for a bit of a, you know, a sovereign capability agenda where we do see our firms uh, being uptaken a little bit more by the government and its procurements and in its use of technology to defend Canada. That's where we position ourselves right now. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, let's throw this out to both of you, and this can be pretty much a free-for-all. What shape is the Canadian cyber domain in these days? What threats are we facing, and what are we doing to counter them? So maybe I'll start out, Mark, and then you can jump in, my friend. Um, I think uh, this is a very complex question, and but a very important one is, you know, who is our adversary today? The challenge with the cyber domain is that it's really just below the traditional conflict levels, right? So everything we see in the cyber domain is just below the threat of armed conflict. And so it strains the traditional policy and structure of what is conflict and how do we deal with, you know, people attacking infrastructure, whether that be a nation state or an organized group or an activist or what have you. So Canada, as we as we sit today, is struggling significantly with, you know, how do we establish policy and structure, um, you know, as are many other nations, by the way, dealing with this digital domain is, you know, we're sensing everything, getting all this data, obviously, we're collecting more and more. So this, it, it lingers in on the edges of privacy, privacy of people, privacy of companies, privacy of government, etc. And we're putting all this data out there, you know, to be uh, filtered and, and utilized for good and for bad, right? And so, the policy issues that are have arisen around this are significant, followed by, you know, the the, the surface or the platform um, that we've created um, is so massive. How do we actually manage, you know, the safety of Canadians and the protection of Canadian government? And of course, in the case of uh, very much this conversation, the Department of National Defense and and the uh, supply chain that's feeding it, it's a very complex challenge. So we're dealing with something that is not going to be solved overnight and is going to take um, significant efforts um, by Canada, uh, more significant efforts than what we're doing right now. Although there are things underway, which I'll get into and maybe leave for Mark to comment on, but you know, we, we, we have five different departments that work in the security domain, you know, in Canada being the Department of National Defense, Public Safety, CSE, and, and the RCMP. 
And these are five disparate domains and they each have a mandate that's quite different. And, you know, uh, some have foreign signals intelligence collection, which is in the cyber domain. Some have, you know, threats to Canada and, and human intelligence and, you know, various other aspects, which are also in the cyber domain and very important. And then you've got those that operate the internet and infrastructure in the country and, you know, and those that prosecute against it, which would be the policing agencies. And then you get the policy sort of makers and public safety, et cetera. The challenge is they're all in different departments and there is no master of all, right? And so our collective issue is really trying to figure out how do we, um, you know, organize ourselves in an effective way from a policy perspective that's going to drive the right innovation levels and, and development of capability and purchasing of that capability in a way that's going to effectively secure the infrastructure for the government of Canada, et cetera, and a coordinated plan. That's not easy. That's a very difficult task. And so when you asked the question, I, I thought about it and I said, you know, where would we, where would we focus on? And I, I think the challenges um, that we have are significant in the context of getting on the same page. And CADC, the reason CADC, you know, brings such a strong voice to this is that they're, that's exactly what they're trying to do, is get us to the comments that Mark made earlier about getting to the same page as to, you know, what can we do together between industry and government to protect our critical infrastructure and the defense supply base such that, you know, our, our men and women are better protected on the platforms they deploy and in the networks they utilize when they're uh, in theater or forward somewhere. So, Mark, over to you. Uh, those are my initial comments. Yeah, great. No, and those are excellent comments, Al. Um, you know, th the only thing I'd really add to it um, is that I'm in the process of, you know, developing a research report for CADZ that's looking at basically what's evolved in the past three years in cyber. And, and I stumbled across a historical anecdote that I think really speaks to the question that you're asking there, James. And so I just want to remind people that from June 9th to 13th in 1997, there was an absolute, you know, cyber catastrophe uh, ripping its way across the U.S. Um, U.S. Pacific Command was uh, overtaken. Um, National Command Authority had its uh, intelligence uh, communication interrupted with all of the, you know, three-letter agencies. Um, 36 government networks were totally overrun, taken over hard drives. Um, and nobody knew what was going on. And uh, and then it was revealed later that the National Security Agency, without informing these groups, was running Operation Eligible Receiver. And they were basically doing this to show how vulnerable these networks and systems are. And they effectively crippled a huge portion of the US, you know, and then returned control to it, obviously, afterwards, sort of advised people, hey, you know, you need to pay more attention to this. Now, I draw attention to this because that was, uh, as of June this year, a quarter century ago, that those lessons were meant to have been learned. And yet we looked at today and we see rampant breaches across government and private networks. And so it just makes us kind of ask ourselves, so if we're you know, a little bit further forward than we were a quarter century ago, but not so much so that we've really changed the nature of the game, what has to fundamentally change? And I think the emerging recognition from most of our allies in terms of all the research that we're seeing is that it is public-private collaboration at both the strategic and operational level that is essential to success. And we do lag behind all of our Five Eyes allies in that regard. And I think it's the thing that has to change. 
the notion that the NSA staged this, it's a very good thing. Nobody launched an attack while the NSA was busy doing this. I mean, that's yeah. pretty convenient. Wow. <laughs> the funny thing about that, just to build on it, is a couple, I think two years later, um, there were two UCAL students running the solar sunrise operation that effectively did the same thing and just showed people, wow, we really actually do need to get ready for this. So, uh, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, still a relevant topic today, unfortunately. Now, I know one thing I promised the listeners right off the top and they want to hear is what are the real cyber threats that Canada and our allies are facing? What are we actually up against right now? What's going on? One of the challenges is that you can't openly talk about operational data with respect to real threats to Canada um, from an attribution level perspective because of the uh, its value and in intelligence, right? I mean, so this is always a challenge when you're talking about uh, threats, actual threats to Canada. But I can tell you that through our work, there is no question that there are state-sponsored actors that are actively engaging in testing, you know, infiltrating, exploiting Canadian infrastructure, energy, telecom, uh, government, otherwise, for the purposes of some future action, right? So it doesn't always have to be I need to do it now, right? So I need to interrupt something now. And if we think about our engagement as a country in the conflict and around the edges of the Ukrainian conflict, and obviously the Russian sanctions and the imposition that that brings upon Russia and its own supply base and its chain of other countries that are working with them, you know, it just makes good common sense that we're going to have an increased number of organized threats against our nation for any engagement that we would do against an adversary because the digital domain allows them to do it from afar without actually launching a missile, a nuclear threat or something of that nature. But it's just as caustic or damaging if we were to shut the, you know, the the infrastructure down in Canada, let's say Toronto and, you know, the power at Bruce Power for say, you know, two or three hours or two or three days or permanently, you know, for, for some action that would cause damage to the plant. Something of that nature, is it possible? And, you know, are the threats there? Absolutely, 100%. I say to you that, that we as a world and as a Western world need to stop being naive about the fact that um, your adversaries can and would attack our critical infrastructure. Now, they also understand that that takes the whole battle to a new game and perhaps, you know, launches, you know, conventional war in response, et cetera. It depends on where that sits, the attack sits on the spectrum. But we mustn't be naive about the fact that, you know, our adversaries are actively looking for ways to compete in the world and to disrupt our competitive position in the world, particularly when we're taking stands against you know, their desires and their actions, for example, the Russians in Ukraine, or perhaps the Chinese and our trade issues there these days, which are all, all too know, well known, particularly around Huawei and other things of that nature. But, you know, as, as we look at the conflicts in the world and the, and the, uh, the shape of the overall global trade and the, and the potential challenges here, we're up against some significant adversaries. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you don't have to look much further than the most recent CSE bulletin, which was published last week, 
looking at the Russia-Ukraine conflict to like to get a sense for what we're up against because you know they use a language that uh, equates their you know their language use to their percentage of certainty, and so almost certain for them means things that are ninety to one hundred percent likely. So they cannot be more certain that these things are happening. And just look at the last three that they report on here. Um, we assess that Russian state-sponsored cyber threat actors will most certainly continue to perform actions to degrade and disrupt uh, Ukrainian assets. We assess that Russian state-sponsored cyber threat actors have almost certainly increased cyber espionage targeting of NATO countries. And we assess that Russia is almost certainly in the process of developing cyber abilities against targets, including in Canada. And so, you know, right there, um, from an organization known for its conservatism, utilizing the almost certain category of 90 to 100% certainty, that these are things that are taking place right now, currently against Canada and its allies. And so I would say with almost certainly that there are some extremely important things happening to Canada that we're not talking about that we need to start addressing and dealing with. Well, the Rogers outage, which happened uh, just before this taping was done, I mean, points out just how vulnerable the infrastructure can be in Canada. And I mean, that was simply caused apparently by a software upgrade issue. Uh, just how vulnerable are we given those that sort of weakness that played out very easily? So I think, you know, you're touching on a very important point. I mean, just even even as a maintenance error, as it's been claimed um, through Rogers on this particular issue, look at the mass and impact, uh, the massive impact that it had on, you know, the economic outcomes in our country, because it, it absolutely impacted banking systems, um, you know, retail systems, et cetera, consumerism, you know, and, and, and on and on. So. If we take the same same context and turn the power off or the communication system off for a couple of weeks in in a major city in Canada and then ask what's the impact, it's catastrophic, right? And so our dependency on the internet and our dependency on communications, our dependency on energy is it's critical. It's foundational to our ability to survive as, a, as people now, et cetera. So it's not, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be unthinkable that two weeks without power would create total and utter chaos in a major city in this country. And it's quite possible that the adversaries could create something of that, particularly when you're looking at a Russian adversary, which is, you know, just look at what they're doing in Ukraine uh, is, you know, take everything at all costs, right? And destroy everything in its path as, as they're going through, you know, like a blitzkrieg type uh, approach to uh, to combat, which is, their textbook approach, right? And so why would it be any different when they get into the adversarial approach, um, you know, in the digital domain? And, and so we, we really do need as a nation to take part in the international agenda. Um, you had asked us earlier about what are we doing to counter them? And we're not doing enough, right? As a, even, even as I would say to you, the Department of National Defense, who I love very deeply as a, as a former soldier, um, and I spent my entire adult career working in the defense industry. I would tell you that we, we're giving it lip service today. Um, the, the, the Department of National Defense does not have a command or so an operational command that is dedicated to the digital domain. Um, it, uh, cyber is a staff officer leadership position, which, uh, you know, the great, great individual leading it uh, just stepped into the seat to uh, Lou Caroselli and, you know, a tremendous individual, but then again, doesn't have the, the authorities and the structure of an operational command like the Army, Navy and Air Force do. 
Why is that in Canada? We have to ask ourselves, you know, so what are we doing? We're trying a lot of things, but we're giving it lip service. We're really towing the water still after all of these truths and all of these threats against our society and the facts, you know, the, the impacts of actual threats against our healthcare systems and our infrastructure and all the things that have happened over the several years. And still, we don't have a dedicated command, operational focus on the protection of the Department of National Defense assets in itself, its men and women in uniform, and it's, uh, and of course, the Defense of Canada. I, I just really struggle with that. And I know, Mark, if you have a comment on that as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, because I also think, you know, back to that issue of Rogers and, you know, these sort of systemic failures. Um, one of the more interesting comments that I saw actually came from the chair of our council, who is a gentleman named Dave McMahon. And, and he, he noted two things. He said, it's not that these systems fail. It's that they fail in very surprising ways that we don't necessarily uh, anticipate. And he connected that concept to another uh, idea or thought, which was that that the internet is one of the first things that humans have created that they don't necessarily fully understand or control anymore. Um, and, and, and so what it reveals um, is a need for a few things, but the one that he closed on was empathy. And I found that very interesting when he said, look, he said, this thing probably surprised a lot of people and how it failed and cascaded. It failed in unanticipated and unintentional ways understanding those surprises is what's most important. And in addition to that, having empathy for those who are trying to recover from it and possibly lending support is what you need to do next. And so I just like to kind of close on those sorts of thoughts or comments because I think they're quite relevant as we move forward when we face these challenges again. Now, of course, and we've touched on this, you know, obviously how big a threat have Russian cyber attacks proven to be since they invaded Ukraine, not just to Ukraine, but to Canada? Because after all, as we saw play out in various military theaters, Afghanistan being the, the last of them, one way to wear down an adversary like NATO is just to keep wearing at it, wearing at it, wearing at it for two decades until eventually they, they walk away just because the conflict has gone away so long. Right. So, you know, first off, you know, how big are the threats and, you know, related to um, since, since they invaded Ukraine? is first off, if you take the timeline leading into Ukraine and look at the postings, uh, the various postings and intelligence that's been collected and shared openly by the U.S. government, um, as well as uh, Microsoft and others that were involved in direct operations or stopping direct operations with cooperation with the government. Um, if you take a look at those, James, they just, they confirm what we know to be the facts they they use the cyber domain as for intelligence and preparation of the battlefield preparation for the execution of the operation in concert with the operation they utilize it they continue to utilize it for mission information and information operations in the context of trying to control the narrative right so whether they're shutting down their own internet etc and doing it in that context which also impacts their ability to communicate but they have other needs and etc so they they are utilizing it as a matter of of course of battle right they utilize the internet and the cyber domain to execute their operations so there is no question on whether or not it's been an impact and you know now the success of that has been somewhat muted 
by the counter operations that have been going on within the Five Eyes community, which I won't get into in detail, but certainly there have been massive uh, counter operations in the context of what uh, Russia has been doing within the Ukrainian environment and by the Ukrainians themselves. And they, they tend to forget that the Ukrainians have had many years to prep for this, and they are not naive in the context of the cyber domain. They've been producing experts in the cyber uh, intelligence and, uh, and cyber defense game for many, many years, in fact, a couple of decades. Um, so they produce great talent out of their educational system. And so they have the ability to defend themselves and they did so effectively in, in many cases as well. And so they continue, the, the Ukrainians themselves continue to counter the operational threats that are in the cyber domain from the Russians. And, uh, and we're seeing through our operational um, intelligence and gathering um, the, the work that we're doing, we are seeing the Russian um, uh, groups that support, so the oligarch and in particular, a few of the oligarchs that are very close to Putin and their reach is being extended through commercial means and is not just unique to Ukraine. This is all over Africa, South Africa, or sorry, South America, sorry, and other parts of the world where the Russians have a direct interest in other supply chain or resources or people. So, um, you know, this is their modus operandi. And so we're not just talking about the Ukrainian conflict here. We're talking about something that's going to be around for a long time, uh, is here, you know, as a matter of course of action for, um, you know, what is a known adversary now at this point to the Western world again. And um, and I think the Russians are going to exploit it continuously until we um, show them that it's not a good domain to play and fight with us in. Right? We're going to have to counter. And you're absolutely right that um, you know, James, that we're not necessarily seeing the cyber Pearl Harbor. Um, you know that everybody's been talking about. Um, we're also not seeing people dropping nukes on each other either. So it really raises another question for us, which is. You know, if you haven't seen some of these, you know, big ticket cyber attacks emerging from Russia, is it because they don't have the capability or that they just haven't decided to use it yet? Um, but, but I think that you've addressed another issue, and, and that's once again reinforced right here at the top of the CSE report. You know, we assess that the scope and severity of cyber operations related to Russian invasion of Ukraine has almost certainly been more sophisticated and widespread than what has been reported in open sources. And I think that goes to what Al is saying is that a lot of what's been happening actually has been happening behind the scenes. You know, we haven't seen those, you know, critical out in the, in the public domain moments yet. Um, and, you know, we wonder maybe the capability is not actually there to affect that type of magnitude uh, of attack, or maybe it's being held in reserve for something really special they need it for. And that's obviously the more terrifying thing to think about. Well, let's take a bit of a positive take now. We've, you know, discussed just barely how complex and deep this is. But on the positive side, what innovations have Canadians brought to the fight against these cyber attacks and others? So that is, uh, that's the passion of Sapper. I think we're really all about um, a sovereign capability for Canada, one that's predicated on the values, principles, and intelligence and, and decisions that we as a nation would make. Um, I like, well, I, I like to follow the intelligence of what my brethren do to the South and, you know, in their, in those security agencies, et cetera. You know, it is an American point of view, right? So we need Canadian 
um, a points of view, Canadian defense systems and Canadian outcomes for that regard. And I think that's what SAPR is all about. So we, over the last few years, and not to make it a commercial for, for SAPR here, but just to say over the last few years, this is exactly what we've been trying to do is close the gap and, and, and build a Team Canada. So a cooperation amongst other innovators in Canada to have a Team Canada response. And in fact, I've been purveying this very heavily to our CADSI engagement through the CADSI Council and stuff is the cooperation of the of the small, medium businesses that exist within the country, because very much so the, the big primes and OEMs haven't built a lot of cyber defense capability just yet in the country because the programs of record have been small, right? And there hasn't been major cyber defense program. So you don't see the big guys chasing, you know, smaller programs, but so, so the innovation base tends to come from the smaller medium um, uh, companies in the country. And, and so for Sapper and our friends, we're very much and very excited about some of the innovation programs that have come to light, like ideas. Uh, there's Innovation Solutions Canada as well. However, it's not fully funded. The biggest challenge that we have there, my friend, is getting innovation programs in. But that's it. The ones that do exist, we've been able to do attribution platforms, automated cyber defense platforms that actually can auto-respond to common threats and auto-collect and various things. Take the, the very menial and difficult tasks of going and doing the collections day in and day out on the uh, on the networks that are out there to, to, to look at them, to look for anomalies and, you know, exploits that the adversaries, uh, particularly advanced persistent threats from nation-state level threats, so, you know, like Russia and China and others against our economy, et cetera, looking for those things is a needle in a haystack. So you need to develop new AI, new automation, new uh, machine learning scripts, et cetera, that help the, a human operator augment themselves to be able to scale to, you know, data in the petabytes of, uh, we're talking scale with the Mars and back in CDs five and six times in a week, right? To be able to surveil all that data. And that's what we need to get to. And there's been great strides in the automation and in the in the domain of, of being able to advance the technologies that way. We just now need to get them into the networks and exploit them. And so I'm seeing great, great advancements and focus in the context of some of the procurement vehicles, et cetera. But there's just not enough of them, right, in the country to uh, to really build on the innovation base yet. So, those would be my opening comments, sir. Yeah, and just to, to build on a couple of things that you know that Al's noted. Um, you know, I wouldn't pick out you know particular technologies. I think I would just sort of talk about the industry in general. Um, you know, and you've got you know brilliant data coming out from I said this year, um, building off the 2018 um, study of cyber firms in Canada. So you've got about 330 firms that are generating about $3.7 billion uh, in revenue per year. But I think the most important number is that they're investing $347 million uh, of that money uh, back into the development of capabilities and technology, which makes it among the top most R&D intensive industries in the entire country. Um, and so I think that what that actually speaks to, it's not that what are the technologies of today, it's that cyber's pace of growth 
and rate of obsolescence of old technologies is so fast that the better metric is how much is your industry investing in R&D and building the capabilities of the future. And if we look at it across what else is happening across the rest of Canada, cyber is right at the forefront and equally competitive with any other country. So James, I just add that, um, you know, one of the big areas that we have a tremendous um, potential in is the open source intelligence, commercial intelligence realm, particularly because Canada is seen as a good information broker and, you know, a kind soul and, you know, a good Western democracy and generally, uh, you know, a bastion or, or a good sample of, of democracy as well. So we're, we're seen as non-threatening, whereas our neighbors, you know, unintentionally, but south of the border tend to be um, seen with a little bit more, um, you know, uh, more uh, an assertive position, right? So we'll call it that. So, um, so we we have this opportunity to step in with commercial intelligence and open source intelligence to provide a perspective and a view from our country to the to the other you know parts of the world that seek and desire open democracies and and capital systems et cetera similar to ours, then you know we can we can share best practices, thoughts, perspectives, intelligence. Etc., and then maybe export capabilities in that regard. So I see that as a massive opportunity for us as we go forward as a nation. Okay, finally, gentlemen, what needs to be done to make the federal government's cyber responses and procurements more timely and effective? And what should the federal government's national security bodies be doing to improve their collaboration with industry? I guess it's kind of cheating because I'm writing a document that basically directly addresses uh, this question. Um, so I'll give a little bit of an overview as I respond to this question. Um, I think that some of the trends that we're seeing in the world that we need to respond to um, are the concepts that Al talked about at the start that we're seeing and needing a consolidation of leadership. You know, we've got 15 different departments and agencies in Canada with some aspect of control over cyber, and yet we don't actually see them working together to the extent that they could be. And so I think one of the things that we absolutely have to focus on is looking at that leadership and governance model that we have and ensuring that we have the right groups leading at the table. And in my view, that's probably a closer partnership between public safety and the communication security establishment and Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity, because they each have aspects of the puzzle. CSC has a great power to convene, and the Centre and CSC have the expertise necessary to protect our assets against digital threats, but don't necessarily have the same outreach into the community that CSC enjoys. And so I believe those two groups, first and foremost, need to work more closely together. Um, the other thing that I think that we're missing in Canada is we don't really have a national cyber force. In every other country, even though that force might have started out as a government construct, they very quickly added private sector into the midst as an integral partner in preparing a country to respond to threats. And the other thing they've done is rather than focus on one or two sectors of interest, they've actually gone to a whole of country approach where anybody who's vulnerable can be defended to make sure that they're utilizing their resources as effectively as possible. And I think the final two elements I would note is that we are really seeing a drive towards deterrence, prosecution, and takedown of bad actors that our government has been a little bit hesitant to do. And certainly Australia and the US are much more leading in this regard. And I think that we need to figure out a way to showcase, for example, those in industry who share threat information with government, that there's a value in return for that investment. And the prosecution and takedown of bad actors publicly uh, is a way to do that. And then finally, I'd like to close on the concept of perhaps a new social contract for the cyber or digital age. Uh, which is that we have all these different governments and departments and agencies with interests that they want to gain things out of it, but also things they can contribute. And yet we haven't defined what it is that we should be expecting 
uh, from each other, what we should be contributing to each other in this arrangement. And I think that that's because there has not been enough of a dialogue or discussion between government and industry. And so we need to create the forums for those discussions so that we can begin to understand what it is we each want to offer each other as we look to better defend our mutual assets together. Thanks, Mark. I think those are all great points. And I'd like to bring up and maybe focus on one or two of those specific areas very quickly. Um, one would be in the procurement area. There just simply aren't enough innovation procurement uh, projects uh, and nor collaboration sites within Canada. Um, you know, I was the founder of Cyber NB in New Brunswick, where we built an economic development engine and a model that actually produced a beautiful building up here. And, you know, it's filled with all types of different great technologies combined with what's going on at the university and the leadership that they've been doing at UNB since the 80s. I think, you know, we need purpose built facilities and capabilities, including investment you know, in this particular domain to one, just meet the basic requirements of protecting ourselves as a nation, but also to gain from the potential capital opportunity that exists in the context of export and uh, uh, et cetera. And, and, you know, and, and to be selfish in the defense security realm, we need to have collaboration because that's the only area or the only way we're actually gonna solve the problem. This is a government industry academic environment that needs to be purpose-built, which it has to respect the security requirements of the domain, et cetera. So this can't happen without, without deliberate thought and planning and execution. And so the, the idea of the governance that Mark brought up and the district departments is a major issue for us collectively as a nation as we go forward. We really do need to solve that governance issue. And part of that governance, uh, you know, we'll get to a plan that will have go beyond policy and execution. And that execution hopefully will include investment and innovation into core cells in the cybersecurity or cyber defense domain for the nation. And, you know, we'll leverage the AI cells that exist within Waterloo and Toronto and Ottawa and, and Montreal, et cetera. And you marry that with the security domain. I think we could do something amazing for our country. So there's great opportunity. And I hope that the, the government moves in its new cybersecurity strategy now underway in some form or fashion towards us. Okay, well, gentlemen, thank you for joining us and giving us such an in-depth view of cybersecurity in Canada. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having us, James. Really appreciate that. Great conversation. Great questions. You've been listening to the latest in the CDR Radio podcast series. They are produced by Canadian Defence Review, Canada's leading defence magazine. I've been speaking with Sapper Labs Al Dillon and Cadsey's Mark Waters about the state of Canadian cybersecurity. To hear more CDR Radio podcasts, go to www.canadiandefencereview.com or find us on iTunes and Google Play under CDR Radio. I'm James Careless. Thank you for listening to the CDR Radio podcast. Talk to you again next time. Tune in next time for another Canadian defense-focused podcast from CDR Radio.